0: And as you turn to James 1, I'm going to read you one verse out of Philippians 1. Paul is writing with the aid of Timothy to the church at Philippi. And he's telling them some wonderful things. My goodness, I'm so thankful for you. Every time I remember you, I thank God for you. And I pray for you every single time I pray. And then he makes this particular comment in verse 6 of chapter 1. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, my question for you this morning, as you are in James chapter 1, is this. Do you believe that statement? Do you believe that God is going to continue to work in your life, that his hand in you was not just to call you to college, His hand on you is to lead you through life and do things with you that he has anticipated for your life. He's going to finish what he has started in you. Do you really in your heart have faith that that's exactly what he's going to do? And if you do, you have to ask yourself a question. I know where I am. I know who I am. I know what I am. And I know what Jesus Christ is. He's all holiness, all perfection, all, all, all wonderful. There's a huge gap between who I am and who he is. But he says, I'm going to continue working in your life till I make you like him. Do you really believe that? Better question, how is he going to do that? And we look for, we look for marvelous things. We look for, you know, for visions and dreams and Great things are going to happen and God's going to interject himself in our life. And There's going to be these, these wonderful mountaintop, tremendous spiritual uh, moments in our life where God does, just jerks us from, from where we are to where he wants us to be. But I'm, I'm going to tell you something. God's going to make you what he wants to make you in Jesus Christ through something very, very mundane. It's called life. And he takes life and he uses it as a tool to make us what he wants us to be. James, a great book. James, the most practical book in the New Testament. It is a bottom line book. James is a get to the point guy. In verse one, I I love his humility. Who was James? He was the half brother of Jesus Christ. But look how he he refers to himself in, in verse one, chapter one. James, a servant of God, a servant of God. Now, you know, I've been around Baptist preachers all my life. They love to drop names. And they'll say, yeah, last week I was over here preaching for this guy. And, and this last week, this guy caught. And the guy that they're talking about is always some big name in fundamentalism. You know, they, they love to drop those names. Well, who could drop a bigger name than James? James, the brother of Messiah. That's a big deal. He didn't say that. He said, hey, I'm just a servant. That's all I am. But he used a particular word for servant. He used the word for servant for a bond slave. Bond slave was the guy that decided, okay, I'm free. I can be free. I have, I've done my years of servitude. I can walk away from here free. But I love my master so much, I don't want to do that. So they back him up against a door or, or a post somewhere, and they take an awl and dig a hole. It was, this was the original pierced ear and dig a hole through his ear, and they put an earring in that ear, and everybody who saw that knew that man is a bond slave. And they would think this to themselves, what a wonderful master he must have, that he preferred staying with his master than being free. Do people think that of you? We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And he says this, I'm writing to the 12 tribes scattered. Why are they scattered? This is the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen. And they just scattered the church all over the place. And we live in the same world that they live in. You know, these people were out of the land, estranged, living in foreign places, just like we are. This is not home. We, we are strangers in this land. We're going home one day, but right now we, we're, we're just visiting. This is not our homeland. James writes, live with the Holy Spirit to help us understand how to respond to problems. These people had a problem. They were persecuted. They were scattered. Didn't quite know what to do next. Life is a difficult thing. I want to speak to you this morning about what James addresses in this chapter. And that is predictable, practical, positive problems. And we need them. Problems are our greatest asset if we handle them properly. If your life has no difficulties, it has no obstacles to overcome. If you have no obstacles to overcome, you will never know what victory feels like. And James is encouraging us to live a victorious life. Let's delve in here. Verse 2. Problems are inevitable. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. They're coming. I love what he said. When, not if. If you have a problem, count it joy. No, 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 no. when you have a problem, count it joy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that trials are common to man. Everybody has trials. Everybody has problems. We'll never learn how to handle difficulties if we live under the erroneous idea that problems are unnatural. Problems are very natural. And they're always going to be part of your life. I know what you're thinking You know, I'm I'm 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. One of these days, I'll get past all this mess, and I won't have any more problems. Not going to happen. I'm 71. I still have problems. In fact, if you look at the Word of God, some of the greatest leaders in the Word of God were men that had great difficulties late in their life. You'll never get away from that. Let me tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why that is. You know what we think about ourselves? We think we're not so bad. We we think we're closer to Jesus than we actually are. We think that to get from where we are to Jesus is like getting from here to the piano. I'm not quite there yet, but it's not that far. Over there. And we need to understand something about ourselves. Being like Jesus is like we are here and Jesus is in Tallahassee. We're a long way for being what we ought to be. So we don't like problems. We think problems are a nuisance in our life, and God brings problems in your life because he's trying to do what he said he was going to do in Philippians, and that's finish what he started in you and make you like his son. Verse 2, the word temptations could have easily been translated trials. It's obvious it's an outward trial, something that came on you, and we never outgrow them. And I love that phrase, when you fall into Fall into. That word is used three times in the New Testament. And the best way to explain what that means to you is Luke 10, 30. Because in Luke 10, 30, we'll read these words. The, the man on the Jericho Road, you've seen the story. Guy's on the way down. He gets attacked. He gets beat up. And the Samaritan comes and helps him. What does the word of God said happen to him? He fell among thieves. That's the same word fall into. He fell among thieves. So what's he say? Don't think it's a weird thing when you're walking along down the sidewalk, whistling, thinking everything is fine, and wham! Somebody on a Segway runs over you. It happens. The New Testament epistles mention repeatedly the trials are going to be part of our life over and over and over and over again. A true test of our Christian character is how we respond to the difficulties that God puts in our life. And are going to be from all different directions, all different kinds. He says it, diverse kinds. First Peter 4 says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering. We look at life and think it's, it's out of the ordinary if we have a difficulty in our life. And the word of God is so clear about the fact that it's out of the ordinary when you don't. Because he's going to use those things to make you like his son. Problems are inevitable. Problems are normal. Problems have a purpose. He said, count it all joy. We would consider it, wouldn't, wouldn't it be joy to avoid a problem? I would think that dodging a tornado would be more advantageous than living through one. He says, count it all joy, consider it, consider it. It's an accounting term. You have two columns. You got a credit, you got a debit. Put it in the right column. Don't think this problem is against you. It is for you. It is a credit, not a debit. Count it joy. A difficulty comes in your life, stop, back up and say, okay, all right, all right, okay. I know you're here. I know you're working on my life. I know you threw this across my path. Don't think it's a strange thing. I know you're working in my life. now I don't want to miss this, because I'd like to learn this lesson once, not four times. So what is it you're trying to teach me? I'm going to count it joy. You know why? Because I know what you're doing. You're trying to make me more like your son. To do that, I have to change. You know what the, you know what the definition for education is a change in behavior. And, and we think we're going to be like Christ without changing behavior. How can God change our behavior? He throws things across our path that make us change. Count it all joy. Keep in mind that the trial itself is not joy. It is the outcome of the trial that's joy. In verse 3, he used the, the word worketh. It worketh. It means it accomplishes something in your life. And God sent it to accomplish something. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There was no joy in my Savior as he hung on that cross. The joy was he could see the outcome of his death. He knew what that death would create. That was the joy. And when the trial comes across your life, the difficulty comes across your desk, understand that the difficulty is not joy. You need to see past the difficulty and see what the difficulty is going to accomplish in your life. That is joy, to be more like him. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The word glory means dignity and honor. There will be a day when the difficulties and problems and trials in your life will create something in you that will be honored. And without those, we won't be honored. We have to change. That sounds like such a simple statement. We don't seem to get it. We can't be like Jesus unless we are different than we are now. How does he make us different? We're not going to change on our own. We're not going to automatically say, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. He has to step in our life and make us do this, 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 and this. We don't like to change. He wants us to change so he can give us down the road dignity and honor, glory. Every trial is a God-given opportunity for growing closer to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers said this, every humiliation, everything that tries and vexes us is God's way of cutting a deeper channel in us through which the life of Christ can flow. Problems are designed to create good things in us. Well, what good things does James say in his his text here, will problems create in us? So you face a problem and you're looking at it. If you're looking at it honestly, you're saying, okay, I know you're doing something in my life. What are you doing in my life? He may be doing any of these things in your life or all of these things. One, purifying. It may bring purification to our life. Verse 3 he says it. Let's look at verse 3 together. Knowing this the trying of your faith worketh patience. Trying is a very interesting word. It means proving it or purging it. We look at, uh, we look at our life as, as things, need, things need to be added to our life for us to be more spiritual but I'll be honest with you more often than not things have to leave for us to be more spiritual. Things that we already have need to go and that's what purging means you, you you take a metal you heat it up the impurities float to the surface you scrape the impurities off and now the metal you have left is more pure than it was before and that's what he's trying to do in your life he brings a problem in your life and you have to look at yourself and ask yourself the question what is it about me in this situation that needs to change and he's going to turn the heat up and get the fire just a little bit hotter and the impurities that are already in you float to the top and he can scrape them off and now we move forward to the next opportunity. Our tests and trials are God's pop quizzes to help us pass the final exam. We might be found under praise and honor and glory at his coming. Well, what else, what else can problems create in our life? Purification is one of them. Another is perseverance. Perseverance. Verse three, patience. Work with patience. Interesting word. It's a spiritual word. It means to stay under. It means to be steadfast. In other words, you, you, don't, you don't get crazy when you have a problem. When something comes in your life, you don't knee jerk respond in, in a bad way. You, you, you stop and you think and you exercise. How can you exercise patience in the middle of a trial? Because you trusted Him. All right. This comes in your life, and you don't look at God and say, Why? You look at God and say, What? What are you doing? I know you love me. I know you care for me. I know you want best for me. And this is a difficulty in my life. Tell me, what what are you doing? Share with me what you're doing. Give me patience in this. Don't let me run. Let me stay until you have your perfect work in me. Help me to be patient. What happens then? Problem comes in your life. And you trust God in that problem. And you get on the other side of that problem and you realize, you know what? God was good. God was good. Good in that. God helped me in that. He blessed me in that. He changed me in that. I feel better. I, I was wrong. I made it right. I, I, I was lazy. He gave me more energy to get to, to, to strive for excellence, so I have a better testimony. I didn't do the right here, but, but you know what? I've learned to do right, and I, I, I'm better because of it. So what happens next time you have a trial? You know what you say to yourself? Been here before? Last time, God was good, and he did wonderful things in my life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust him again. And then as you go through life, when problems come up, you get more patient and more patient, and you stay under, and you stay under, and you stay under. And now you're such a, a level, settled individual, and nothing, nothing rocks your boat anymore. You're fine. Whatever it comes in your life, God and you can handle it. Patience is based upon faith. Testing develops staying power. Testing teaches us to wait instead of wilt. We are stretched or tested or made to feel uncomfortable. We want to run. And patience says, no, I'm going to stay here and find out what it is God's doing in my life. And I'm going to let him do that in my life because I want to be more like his son. There's something else that trials can bring in our life. They can bring in purification. They can bring in perseverance. They can also bring in perfection. In verse 4, look what he said. Let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Perfection is never sinlessness in Scripture. It always refers to maturity. Never refers to sinlessness. Until he comes and gets us and changes us into a glorified body, we will never be sinless. But we can reach maturity that we can have. Please understand, Seniors are in here. They're going to get a diploma, some of them, in May, April. When's graduation? May. I'm going to tell you something about those seniors. They didn't pass all the quizzes, they didn't fully, completely understand and master all the concepts, but they'll still get a diploma. And as we walk through our Christian life, you're not going to pass every test. You're not going to make an A on everything. You're going to fail. You're going to stumble. You're going to run when you should have waited. You're not going to look into the situation deeply enough. You're going to be offended by something somebody said, and instead of turning to God and asking Him what He's doing, you're going to get all puffed up and mad. And then you'll look back and realize the damage you did, and you got to go back and fix. You're not going to pass every test that comes your way. But he is going to give you one day a diploma anyway. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. We may slip and fall occasionally, but we march ever forward. And the result of our marching forward will one day be maturity in him. The one who never has to deal with problems, never has trials, never becomes mature. When we understand how far we are from the likeness of Christ, it'll help us to stay there and seek that maturity. What else can problems bring into your life? Prayer. Look what he says in verses 5 to 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let him ask the very definition of prayer. Let him ask. Difficulties have a way of taking our focus off of God and putting it on the circumstance. And what God wants you to see is he put the circumstance there. And he's in the middle of it. And he's trying to do something with you. In the middle of a crisis, in the middle of stress, as you might be under, don't take a pill and don't go read a self-help book. Ask God. Let him ask of God. The very middle verse in, in Scripture is Psalm 118.8. Middle verse in the Word of God. It says this, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And we look at that and say, That's right, I don't trust men, I trust God. But do you understand the man in that verse is you? Don't trust you. Trust God. Go pray. Go ask him what he's doing. Go ask him what you should be doing in the midst of that problem. I wonder, don't raise your hand. This is not testimony hour, but let me ask you a question. How many of you have gone back to God and asked for forgiveness for the exact same sin more than one time? Don't raise your hand, don't give yourself away. I've done it many times, I, many times in my life. In fact, I've had to start many prayers with Lord I'm here again, it's me, same problem. There was a certain kind of student that I just, I, I, I didn't, our, our personalities just didn't click. And I, I, I'm not gonna tell you who it is because you might be that student. Uh, I was teaching at the high school, and there was, every year I had this student that, that, that personality just rubbed me wrong. And I had difficulty dealing with that student. And in my ignorance, I thought it was the student. It was me. You know what God did? God gave me that student every single year. Had a different name, same student. Until I realized it's me. Every difficulty you have with someone, you must understand something. God's not trying to change them. He's trying to change you. And we need to run to him. And I've had to go back to God again and again and again. Same thing, same problem, same failure, same sin, some issue in my life. And I run back to him. And God knows you're going to do that. And he knew I was going to do that. So he said very sweetly and warmly and with preciousness in his voice, I will not upbraid you. Come to me. God never does this. Father, it's me again. I've got the same problem again. I'm, I'm back here asking for forgiveness. I know it's number 37. But I'm here again and God doesn't go, are you kidding me? When are you ever going to learn? He never treats us that way. You come to the same problem again and again and again and again and again and you fall on your face before him and say, Lord, it's me again and I'm still dealing with this situation and I'm still trying to learn what it is you're trying to teach me and God says, I'm here for you and I love you. I'm gonna put my arms around you and we're gonna try this again. He does not upbraid, but he does have a condition. He does have a condition. Verse six, nothing wavering. He means don't doubt me. Wavering comes from a word that means to go from one to two. You divide. You had one, but you divided it. Now you have two. And we think both ways. We can't say, why is this in my life? Why are you doing this to me? That's wavering. He wants us to have his mind, understand he loves us, he cares for us, he's trying to change us, and so we go back to him with his mind and say, Lord, I know you're doing something in my life, please do it. And you can't approach God both ways. Peter walked on the waves with Jesus until he began to sink in Matthew 14, 31, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Doubt is akin to wavering. It means what, what Jesus said to him was, why did you think twice? You were doing fine. Why would you let your mind go a different direction? Double-minded, two separate thought patterns, and he wants us to have his thought pattern concerning problems in our life. Problems are inevitable. Problems have purpose. George Sweeting said this, Christians are like tea bags, not worth much until they've been through some hot water. And that's true of our life. Victory implies conflict. Conflict implies problems. Problems are tools used by God to cause us to seek wisdom, to gain patience through trust, to increase our faith, to elevate us to maturity, and to eventually become victorious. And that's why he can say, count it all joy, because the purpose is wonderful. God says this, I have a canvas here, and I want to paint your life. I want to paint your portrait on this canvas. And you go through a problem and a difficulty, and you seek his face, and you're purified by it, and you develop patience in it, and you've learned to pray through it and trust him, and God dips the paint and puts a few brush strokes on that canvas. And life continues and you learn more and you learn more and you grow more and there's more difficulties and there's more change in your life and you grow and every time it happens he dips in the paint and puts a few strokes on that canvas and then at the end of your life he says you want to see and he turns the canvas around and it's not you it's him and that was his purpose in your life You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.